Our scripture today um, comes from uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's found on page 1818 on your pew Bibles. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. At the beginning of the passage, you'll see that there's two groups of people involved here. The people that Paul calls you and the people that he calls we. So who are these people? If you skip down to verse 11, you'll notice that Paul uses the same you to refer to Gentiles or people who weren't Jews. And he seems to use that we to refer to other Jews like Paul. Since most of the people living in Ephesus were Gentiles. Um, so he starts out rather harshly. He says, you Gentiles were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that they followed the course of this world by following the prince of the authority of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that these Gentiles, without exception, were living a life of sin. They were worshiping idols, which Paul told them were actually just demons. And those demons still have authority over a lot of their Gentile brothers and sisters. Now, this is a really striking thing to say. But it was very normal for Paul's, in Paul's time to say that the idols would make you slaves. In fact, it's said all over the Bible. It made sense when you look at it for yourself. The things you worship tend to be the things you serve. If you worship money or the god of money, you'll serve money with all your life, even when it's not good for you. If you worship food, you'll serve food, even when it's not good for you. If you worship drugs, you'll serve drugs with all your life, even when it's not good for you. And if you serve something even when it's not good for you and you can't stop, even if you tried, then you could say you're in something very much like slavery. But that's not even the Paul, metaphor that Paul uses here. The Gentiles who do what is evil and worship what turned out to be demons were not merely slaves, but they were dead. It's even worse. Being a slave is a terrible thing. There's not a whole lot you can do for many slaves in most situations. But at least remains possible for a slave to be freed. You could liberate him somehow. 
But instead, Paul says they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They weren't even really living life at all. And they were hopeless, and there's no coming back from the dead. So all of this would have been fairly typical, actually, for a Jew to say about non-Jews in those days, but maybe a little bit more harsh. The Gentiles didn't have the Torah, so they had no idea how to please God. They didn't even know how to do the right thing, so they acted like barbarians, and they conquer, and they kill, and they enslave. That's just what Gentiles do. The Jews in his audience probably would have given a hearty amen. Preach, Paul. But now Paul pivots to talk about the Jews. Now this message that he has would have been far less typical. He says, we, or Jews, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and we were by nature children of wrath. These were all uncomfortable truths for Paul's people. Everyone recognized that even though God had given them the Torah, they still constantly sinned against him. It's one of the biggest themes of the whole Old Testament. It's true, but nobody liked to admit it. The Israelites were supposed to be better than that. And given what God had said about Israel becoming a blessing to the whole world, it was surprising they weren't better than that. In fact, it was the great mystery of 1,500 years of Jewish history. Why can't we live up to the mission that God has for us? What's holding us back? Why can't we follow God's law and bear his presence to the whole world? How they knew it was true, that's for sure, but it's uncomfortable. They just don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. But then Paul goes one step further, okay? And it's hard to imagine going further than that. Paul says, just like all the rest. In other words, there really was practically no difference between Jew and Gentile when it came to the eyes of God. Yes, the Jews had been given the Torah. Yes, they had been given the whole Old Testament. Yes, they were God's chosen people. When push comes to shove, they didn't act any different from the Gentiles. So they simply weren't any different. It didn't matter if they had all the more resources to please God and do the right thing if they never actually did it. So just as much as the Gentiles, the Jews were also dead in their sins. Now, that would have been very offensive to anyone, any of the people that Paul was talking to. But it was true. They were completely hopeless and not even really living. Every single person in the whole wide world was in the same boat. They were dead, and there's no coming back from the dead. Now, this is an important thing to remember about human nature. There's a stream of thought in the last couple hundred years that says if we manage to educate people just right, then they will live moral lives. It was actually behind a lot of the expansion of the public school system as part of the progressive movement in the early 1900s. The idea is simply that the reason people do bad stuff is because they don't really know what's bad. Uh, if we teach, teach them what's bad and what's good, they'll be good citizens. It could be summarized by a quote from Henry David Thoreau that says, the only sin in the world is ignorance. In other words, all sins really just stem from not knowing what you need to know. If you educate everyone, there will be utopia. You just need to teach them, and that right from wrong, smart people tend to be better people, stuff like that. You can see it all over the place if you know where to look. Just yesterday, I was watching a show called The Good Place, which is actually really pretty funny. Um, but the gist of one of the episodes was that they were trying to turn a literal demon into a good person. And the way they did that was by taking a really smart philosophy professor and having him teach a class on ethics. 
You know, they talked about the trolley problem and whether you should steal bread to feed your family. And wham, the demon turned into a good person. But we all know that's kind of absurd, right? You don't simply become a good person by attending an ethics class. But Paul says something radically different. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins. And there is no real remedy for someone who's dead except for a resurrection. It's going to take a complete miracle. It's good to teach people right from wrong, but that's no more effective in making sure they always do the right thing than it is for someone to go to a dead body and tell it how to walk. The Israelites were educated by the Torah, the perfect instruction on how to do the will of God, for one and a half millennia by the time that Paul was writing. And they still hadn't managed to actually do what God wanted them to do. They were just as dead as everyone else. They were just were dead people who happened to know right from wrong. And even so, they chose to do what's wrong, which is somehow a lot worse. You couldn't educate somebody into true ethical living. We all were dead. No hope. There's no coming back from the dead. Now, it also brings up another point to remember all throughout our lives. It's easy to look around at the world and think that the people who think like me or look like me or act like me are just inherently better people. How often do you start talking to someone and they say something that seems to signal that they're in a different tribe, whether politically or culturally or ethnically or religiously, or even that they're fans of different sports teams? And you think, uh-oh, I didn't even know them at all. They're one of those people. The Jews at this time would have had the same kind of things with Gentiles. But what Paul was saying was that it just didn't matter. All these divisions between different kinds of people aren't important anymore. Forget about the particulars about where you come from, about the thousand-year gripes between your people and other people, because in the reality, important things are, are just the same. You might think differently and talk differently and reason differently, but all of you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Whether you were instructed on how to do the right thing or how to serve God or please God or not, you just didn't serve, serve God. So we're all in the same boat. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins, and there's no coming back from the dead. So then Paul says, but God. And what a glorious two words that is. We were dead in our trespasses. We are thoroughly, through our own fault, damaged by our own human nature that knows what the right thing to do is, but we don't do it. All of us together are incapable of saving ourselves or doing anything other than serve one demon after another. Look even at your own life and all of your many sins and consider how easy it would be to drown in them. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has not allowed this state to be ours forever. God was merciful not just to one group of people, but to all of them. The God who has no obligations toward us has been rich in love and mercy and loyalty to his own rebellious creation and has decided to save us. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because of his impossible love, it was God's own good pleasure to become one of us, to live the righteous life we couldn't live, and to die the death of any common sinner. And all of this so that we could be welcomed into his presence with joy. Now, it wasn't by sending a professor to educate us into doing the right thing. We needed so much more than that. We were dead. There's no coming back from the dead. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, yes, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his kindness, grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, last week we looked at the longest sentence in the New Testament. It was 202 words long. Remember that it was meant to make you get lost in the wonder of the love of God. Now this sentence is shorter, but it still is a nice 60-word doozy. Just think about how wonderful this news is. Memorize it, and think about it when you're trying to go to sleep at night if you want to stay up all night. Think about the incredible and expansive phrases like rich in mercy and heavenly places and immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. I mean, not only are we not slaves anymore, not only are we not dead anymore, we are incomprehensibly rich in the incredible kindness of God in Christ. And think for a few seconds about just how incredible um, that past tense is. Made us alive together in Christ, or raised us up and seated us with him. All of that in the past. Not in the future, not at the end of the world, not when we get to heaven, but now. We are now alive together because when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him all those years later in 30 AD. And when he raised from the dead three days later, we also rose with him. And now when we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, we are now, if we are in Christ, gloriously and splendidly alive in the freedom of being true children of God. But it's a new life we're talking about here. Not this old half-life we experienced, which was governed by paranoia and hatred and sin, but real and genuine life, which bubbles up like streams of living water to glorify the God who loves us and gave himself for us. In Greek, Paul uses the word together three times in verses 5 and 6. God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He raised us up together with him, and he seated us together with him in heavenly places. In all of these things, our own salvation mirrors the life of Jesus, who died, was resurrected, and ascended to take his seat at the throne of heaven. All of these things were done together with us. God has united himself to dead humans like us, so that even Christ's death becomes our death. But Christ's death was one where the grave simply couldn't keep him. It was a voluntary death for the sake of those he loved. And through that death, even death itself was swallowed up in Christ's victory. And even that death-killing death is now our death, so that Christ's resurrection can become our resurrection. And all of this was done together, both together with Christ and together with all the rest of the church, so that we can all be a new community of newly living people who once were dead and are now alive. And we wouldn't have it any other way. Now we have a new nature, which is actually able to resist sin and to serve God rather than demons. We are not only free, but we can truly live. We were once all in the same boat, dead in our trespasses and sins, every last human from the beginning to the end. But every member of the church, without respect to gender or opinion or race or ethnicity or nationality or any other division we can come up with, Every member has been made alive together with Christ through his resurrection. I mean, what more is there to say but praise God? 
Praise him with every breath in our lungs. Because every second of true life is due entirely to the incredible love shown in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I wrote this, the majority of this sermon three months ago. And when I looked back at the sermon this week, it almost felt off. It's hard to really celebrate the incredible grace of Jesus with such heavy hearts because of what we've seen recently. The kind of things you see in those wars are death. And I mean death in the kind of sense that we saw in our passage today, not just in physical death. And I, I'm, in, in our worship meeting, um, I gave this sermon the name Costly Peace on September 20th which was more than two weeks before hostilities broke out between Israel and Hamas. I hadn't written it yet, uh, but I was planning on including something about how the new peace with God that we have was won. In the triumph of the gospel, it's easy to forget what it really took for us to have peace with God. You know, God could have wiped us all out when we had sinned against him. I don't know. If I was God, that might have been easier, right? He could have started fresh. He could have made a whole different universe and leave this one, which has already rejected him, to its own devices. That would have been fair. We asked for it. And that would have been peace in a sense. But God made peace in a different way. He saw the conflict between us and God and between different groups of humans, and all of them seemed completely hopeless. But God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and even though he was not at fault for any of the pain and suffering that these conflicts caused, he bore its consequences alone. He saw the gap that had broken out between God and humanity and between different groups of people, and he found that state of being totally unacceptable. We weren't made for that. It's not how creation was ever meant to be. The gap couldn't stand. So Christ stood in that gap and bore the suffering and humiliation and hatred of every conflict in human history so that we would have the freedom of true relationship with God and with others. It was costly. But God loved us so much that he made peace with us. That's how God made peace with the world. I don't know how these conflicts end. I don't know the practical first step for any of the first actors toward peace. I've done a lot of research, but I don't pretend to know the first thing about how the people are feeling and why. And I'm not just talking about those wars, but about those conflicts in our denomination and in our families and our broken relationships. And even at our church, if we don't have major conflicts now, we will in the future, so we should be ready. But I do know that the path to true peace is probably gonna look a lot more like the path that Jesus took on the way to the cross than the path that Caesar took on the way to destroy his enemies. Maybe it starts with the recognition that every one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins, but can be made alive together through his resurrection. Peace isn't gonna come through one more social media post or one more stellar argument that proves that you're the good guy and the anonymous stranger on the internet is the bad guy. It's not gonna come through that thing that we most want which is the answer to the conflict that's completely satisfying because you're allowed to trample your enemy into the dust. It's also not going to come up through throwing your hands up and saying that both sides are really bad, so nobody should be held accountable for their actions and they should just stay away from each other. Peace is only achieved through love. 
And love sometimes, oftentimes means giving up the thing that's easiest or the thing that feels really good so you can do what's best for your neighbor. True peace is probably going to be achieved when we look more like Christ, seeing the impossible gaps between people and God and refusing to simply be satisfied with it. It comes from people standing in the gaps and bearing the hatred that comes from everyone involved, even if they didn't deserve it. So you build bridges between groups, even if it means that they have to walk over you to get to each other. Paul says, Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, and so making peace. So that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. Great God, we are in awe of your incredible love and mercy that you've shown to us through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. But we pray that we would find ways to imitate Christ in making peace, and we would be willing and strong enough to make that peace, even if it means suffering ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.